Section 28 of Knickerbocker's History of New York, Volume 1, by Washington Irving. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Malone. Knickerbocker's History of New York, Volume 1, by Washington Irving. Book Three, Chapter Nine. By this time, my readers must fully perceive what an arduous task I have undertaken, exploring a little kind of Herculaneum of history, which had lain nearly for ages buried under the rubbish of years, and almost totally forgotten, raking up the limbs and fragments of disjointed facts and endeavouring to put them scrupulously together, so as to restore them to their original form and connection, now lugging forth the character of an almost forgotten hero, like a mutilated statue, now deciphering a half-defaced inscription, and now lighting upon a mouldering manuscript, which, after painful study, scarce repays the trouble of perusal. In such cases, how much has the reader to depend upon the honor and probity of his author, lest, like a cunning antiquarian, he either impose upon him some spurious fabrication of his own for a precious relic from antiquity, or else dress up the dismembered fragment with such false trappings that it is scarcely possible to distinguish the truth from the fiction with which it is enveloped. This is a grievance which I have more than once had to lament in the course of my wearisome researches among the works of my fellow historians, who have strangely disguised and distorted the facts respecting this country, and particularly respecting the great province of New Netherlands, as will be perceived by any who will take the trouble to compare their romantic effusions tricked out in the meretricious gauds of fable, with this authentic history. I have had more vexations of the kind to encounter in those parts of my history which treated the transactions on the eastern border than in any other, in consequence of the troops of historians who have infested those quarters, and have shown the honest people of New Netherlands no mercy in their works. Among the rest, Mr. Benjamin Trumbull arrogantly declares that the Dutch were always mere intruders. Now to this I shall make no other reply than to proceed in the steady narration of my history, which will contain not only proofs that the Dutch had clear title and possession in the fair valleys of the Connecticut, and that they were wrongfully dispossessed thereof, but likewise that they have been scandalously maltreated ever since by the misrepresentations of the crafty historians of New England. And in this I shall be guided by a spirit of truth and impartiality, and a regard to immortal fame, for I would not wittingly dishonor my work by a single falsehood, misrepresentation, or prejudice, though it should gain our forefathers the whole country of New England. 
I have already noticed in a former chapter of my history that the territories of the New Netherlands extended on the east quite to the Varsh or Frush or Connecticut River. Here, at an early period, had been established a frontier post on the bank of the river, and called Fort Hood Hope, not far from the site of the present fair city of Hartford. It was placed under the command of Jacobus van Curlet, or Curlus, as some historians will have it, a doughty soldier of that stomachful class famous for eating all they kill. He was long in the body and short in the limb, as though a tall man's body had been mounted on a little man's legs. He made up for this turnspit construction by striding to such an extent that you would have sworn he had on the seven-league boots of Jack the Giant Killer, and so high did he tread on parade that his soldiers were sometimes alarmed lest he should trample himself underfoot. But notwithstanding the erection of this fort, and the appointment of this ugly little man-of-war as commander, the Yankees continued the interlopings hinted at in my last chapter, and at length had the audacity to squat themselves down within the jurisdiction of Fort Hood Hope. The long-bodied Van Curlet protested with great spirit against these unwarrantable encroachments, couching his protest in low Dutch, by way of inspiring more terror, and forthwith dispatched a copy of the protest to the governor at New Amsterdam, together with a long and bitter account of the aggressions of the enemy. This done, he ordered his men, one and all, to be of good cheer, shut the gate of the fort, smoked three pipes, went to bed, and awaited the result with a resolute and intrepid tranquillity that greatly animated his adherents, and, no doubt, struck sore dismay and affright into the hearts of the enemy. Now it came to pass that about this time the renowned Wouter van Twiller, full of years and honors, and council dinners, had reached the period of life and faculty which, according to the great Gulliver, entitles a man to admission into the ancient order of Strudelbrugs. He employed his time in smoking his Turkish pipe amid an assemblage of sages equally enlightened, and nearly as venerable as himself, and who for their silence, their gravity, their wisdom, and their cautious averseness to coming to any conclusion in business, are only to be equalled by certain profound corporations which I have known in my time. Upon reading the protest of the gallant Jacobus van Curlet, therefore, His Excellency fell straightway into one of the deepest doubts that ever he was known to encounter. His capacious head gradually drooped on his chest, he closed his eyes, and inclined his ear to one side, as if listening with great attention to the discussion that was going on in his belly, and which all who knew him declared to be the huge courthouse or council chamber of his thoughts, forming to his head what the House of Representatives does to the Senate. 
an inarticulate sound, very much resembling a snore, occasionally escaped him, but the nature of this internal cogitation was never known, as he never opened his lips on the subject to man, woman, or child. In the meantime, the protect of Van Curlet lay quietly on the table, where it served to light the pipes of the venerable sages assembled in council and in the great smoke which they raised the gallant jacobus his protest and his mighty fort good hoop were soon as completely beclouded and forgotten as is a question of emergency swallowed up in the speeches and resolutions of a modern session of congress there are certain emergencies where your profound legislators and sage deliberative councils are mightily in the way of a nation, and when an ounce of harebrained decision is worth a pound of sage doubt and cautious discussion. Such at least was the case at present, for while the renowned Wouter van Twiller was daily battling with his doubts, and his resolution growing weaker and weaker in the contest, the enemy pushed farther and farther into his territories, and assumed a most formidable appearance in the neighborhood of Fort Hoodhoop. Here they founded the mighty town of Pequag, or, as it has since been called, Weathersfield, a place which, if we may credit the assertions of that worthy historian John Jocelyn, gentleman, hath been infamous by reason of the witches therein. And so daring did these men of Pequag become, that they extended those plantations of onions, for which their town is illustrious, under the very noses of the garrison of Fort Hoodhoop, insomuch that the honest Dutchmen could not look toward that quarter without tears in their eyes. This crying injustice was regarded with proper indignation by the gallant Jacobus von Curlet. He absolutely trembled with the violence of this collar and the exacerbations of his valor, which were the more turbulent in their workings from the length of the body in which they were agitated. He forthwith proceeded to strengthen his redoubts, heighten his breastworks, deepen his fosse, and fortify his position with a double row of abatis, after which he dispatched a fresh courier with accounts of his perilous situation. The courier chosen to bear the dispatches was a fat, oily little man, as being less liable to be worn out or to lose leather on the journey and to ensure his speed he was mounted on the fleetest wagon-horse in the garrison, remarkable for length of limb, largeness of bone, and hardness of trot, and so tall that the little messenger was obliged to climb on his back by means of his tail and crupper. Such extraordinary speed did he make that he arrived at Fort Amsterdam in a little less than a month, though the distance was full two hundred pipes or about one hundred and twenty miles. With an appearance of great hurry and business, and smoking a short traveling pipe, he proceeded on a long swing trot through the muddy lanes of the metropolis, demolishing whole batches of dirt pies which the little Dutch children were making in the road, and for which kind of pastry the children of this city have ever been famous.
On arriving at the governor's house, he climbed down from his steed, roused the gray-headed doorkeeper, old Scots, who, like his lineal descendant and faithful representative, the venerable crier of our court, was nodding at his post, rattled at the door of the council chamber and startled the members as they were dozing over a plan for establishing a public market. At that very moment a gentle grunt, or rather a deep-drawn snore, was heard from the chair of the governor. A whiff of smoke was at the same instant observed to escape from his lips, and a light cloud to ascend from the bowl of his pipe. The council, of course, supposed him engaged in deep sleep for the good of the community, and, according to custom, in all such cases established, every man bawled out, Silence! When, of a sudden, the door flew open, and the little courier straddled into the apartment, cased to the middle of a pair of hessian boots, which he had got into for the sake of expedition, in his right hand he held forth the ominous dispatches, and with his left he grasped firmly the waistband of his Galagascans, which had unfortunately given way in the exertion of descending from his horse. He stumped resolutely up to the governor, and with more hurry than perspicuity, delivered his message. But fortunately his ill tidings came too late to ruffle the tranquillity of this most tranquil of rulers. His venerable excellency had just breathed and smoked his last, his lungs and his pipe having been exhausted together, and his peaceful soul having escaped in the last whiff that curled from his tobacco pipe. In a word, the renowned Walter the Doubter, who had so often slumbered with his contemporaries, now slept with his fathers, and Wilhelmus Kieft governed in his stead. End of section 28 Reading by Malone